The woman is perfected. Her dead body wears the smile of accomplishment. The illusion of a Greek necessity flows in the scrolls of her toga. Her bare feet seem to be saying, We've come so far. It is over. Each dead child coiled, a white serpent, one at each little pitcher of milk, now empty. She has folded them back into her body as petals of a rose close when the garden stiffens and odors bleed from the sweet, deep throats of the night flower. The moon has nothing to be sad about, staring from her hood of bone. She is used to this sort of thing. Her blacks crackle and drag. Edge by Sylvia Plath. Welcome to Redeeming Disorder, the podcast where we share real stories of mental disorder to overcome stigma, redeem perceptions, and start a conversation. Hello and welcome to episode 7 of Redeeming Disorder. As you can probably tell from the Sylvia Plath poem I shared at the beginning of this episode, we cover some tough topics today, including schizophrenia, vaginismus, OCPD, and suicide. As Spencer and I have embarked on the second half of our season, we've been talking a lot about how while we want to educate and share stories with our audience, We both kind of unconsciously think about the entertainment value at the same time, which just feels kind of wrong. I I don't know. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's like, and also just the sheer logistical planning of a podcast, it's, it's hard given the subject matter. And I do kind of want to talk about it just for a second that it's been an interesting dynamic. And I think this comes up whenever you talk about disorder, that the seriousness of the subject matter um, doesn't jive well often with your goals as a podcaster or someone trying to share a message where, you know, I'll find myself thinking, oh, you know, here's someone who can talk about suicide. Wow. Great. Mm -hmm. And then take a step back and say, oh my gosh, you know, it's definitely not great. Um, and so, yeah, there's definitely this, this conflict with the real stories and emotions of the people we're talking to in the show we're making. Uh, it's, it's, it's been a hard thing to be conscious of while talking about mental disorder, and I imagine this comes up all the time when talking about a podcast or referencing stories you've heard or sharing your opinions about disorder where uh, people often have big emotional stakes in the conversation, if you will. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think... Uh, there's so many instances I can think of when somebody shares a deep personal story and and the person sitting next to them just flippantly responds in a way that's not empathetic. And I hope we aren't doing that. It, it is hard, though. I mean, I joke with my friend Kelly, who was on on episode four, when I heard her story about depression that she read in my writing group. I went up to her and I was I said, hey, do you want to, do you have depression? Do you want to be on my podcast? And she said, yes. And I was like, yes. <laughs> and so it's, <laughs> it's easy to kind of slip into that. But um, yeah. I think you guys listening today um, with the guests that we have on, they share real stories, hard stories even. And you'll, 
listen to the real pain that they go through. And I think while it is interesting, um, and I hope you are in some ways entertained, I hope that we don't collectively lose that compassion and empathy that this subject requires. I don't think we will. I think it's a matter of being conscious of it and knowing you are making a show, making a product, but Mm -hmm. never losing sight of what that project is about. Never looking more at the download numbers uh, or the iTunes charts than you look at (laughs) the people you're helping and the responses you're getting from people with real stories. I think it it goes back again to the seminal uh, cinematic masterpiece that is What About Bob? Um, <laughs> it, always <laughs> you, what about Bob? It, it always goes back to What About Bob? It always goes back to What About Bob. You know, the psychiatrist in that movie, it starts with him talking about his book that he's releasing and he has just developed this enormous ego around his brand and his product and his amazing expertise at being a psychiatrist and helping people and uh yeah i think i think it is something to be conscious of to focus less on the story of us making this podcast and more of the story of what motivated us to make this podcast and uh sort of take the ego out of it it's just something that we've been thinking about you know we were talking about this and thought we would just put it on the podcast because I think it's interesting and relevant and we're definitely curious if anyone has thoughts on how you talk about these topics and how you do so staying true to that compassion yeah I I think everyone's gonna love the guests we have on today Um, we have Michael McRae who's a writer Dino Andes, who lives in the Philippines and is studying psychology, and Ashley Thornton, who also works in the mental health field. And they all have their own personal stories to share, and I'm so excited for you guys to listen. So we have a ton to cover, a lot of heavy material. We want to bring you a good show, but be true to the material we're covering and respect it as well. So I hope you enjoy what we have for you today. Our first guest today is someone I actually met at the beginning of this whole podcasting journey. I went to a reading here in Nashville, where I live, with my writing group and heard his story, and I knew I just had to have him on. His name is Michael McRae, and he's actually the founder of a monthly storytelling event called 10 by 9 Nashville, where people of all writing abilities come and share their stories. As you'll hear in a little bit, Michael McRae is a gifted writer. We're so lucky to have him on. He's the author of two books, which I'll put in the show notes. The story he shares is powerful. It's about his suicide attempt seven years ago. He does not go into any details about the attempt or the origins of the depression that caused this attempt. Um, while the subject matter is dark and hard, I think you'll find his story beautiful and redemptive. So please enjoy his story. I slammed my laptop shut and stared at the wall. That Skype call with my dad had made my blood boil. I don't remember now what the disagreement was about. It was seven years ago, and disagreements aren't that unusual between parents and their children. But that Friday night, I was hurt. Throughout the next day, I avoided my dad, declining his request to talk. I was in college in Nashville, and my parents were living in Texas. I knew the only way we'd talk was if I answered the phone. It's not like he could just show up on campus. So I held on to that control. 
I was angry, and I wanted him to know that. Finally, around 9 p.m. on November 14th, 2009, Dad sent me a text. I really would like to talk before bed. I decided to reply a bit more softly this time. I'm sorry, I'm just too fragile right now. It seems the language of fragility caused him concern, and he texted back, encouraging me again to call, straddling that line between polite invitation and parental insistence. So I gave in. As I remember it, it only took one question from my dad. Talk to me, Mike. What's wrong? And I broke into pieces. I collapsed against my dorm room bed, weeping. Help me, please. I told him through gasps what was going on. The depression had been growing for months. I never really knew where it started or when it started, but I feared where it was heading. A cloud had set over me that I couldn't run from. I felt lonely and lost. I started isolating more and more in my dorm room. My roommate was gone a lot, and so it made it easier to hide. When people asked me what, how I was doing, I lied both to them and myself. Pretending I wasn't depressed, though, only seemed to be making things worse. We decided I should drive to my grandparents' house about 20 minutes away so I would have company. Wiping away tears, I hung up, packed Sunday clothes for church the next morning, locked the door behind me, and drove to my grandparents' Donaldson home. But I didn't make it, at least not for several hours. As I drove, what little hope I was clinging to vanished, like riding in the sand when the tide comes in. I suddenly felt immersed in darkness. I stopped my car off the interstate and wept like I had never wept before. I pounded the steering wheel and screamed for answers. I needed someone or something to tell me why this was happening to me. But no answer came. Then my impulsive personality got the better of me. For the first time in months, I seemed to have clarity. I suddenly knew what was about to happen. I was about to die. My phone started ringing. It was Dad. I couldn't answer. He clearly thought I should have been to my grandparents by now, and he was right. I should have been. So I just let the calls ring, one after the other. The time was near now, but I couldn't go without saying goodbye, at least to someone. I reached for my phone. My hands shook with such intensity that I nearly dropped it. I pressed the shortcut key to text my sister, Anna, and as my heart pounded and my shoulders heaved, I typed the following message. No matter what, never forget how much I love you. I set the phone down in the cup holder and then tried to kill myself. Thankfully, I failed, and only through a few fortunate mishaps. When I realized I had just narrowly escaped death, I suddenly began to come to. It wasn't that I was unconscious, but more that I had suffered a temporary fit of psychosis. It was like I'd been hypnotized, but now the snap had occurred, and I was back in reality. I picked myself up and looked around me in bewilderment and fear and relief. It wasn't long before I heard the sirens and saw the flashing blue lights speeding over the hill, driving against the traffic. Someone had seen me and called the police. When the cop arrived, he was abrasive and curt. He pushed me into the hood of his car and interrogated me while he slapped the handcuffs on too tight. You been drinking, son? Taking drugs? 
No, sir, I answered honestly, just having some hard times. Before long, another squad car arrived, and then another. I was put in the back of one of them, and then made to wait. After some time, my right shoulder began to throb, and I pleaded with the officer to uncuff my right hand for just a moment while I adjusted my shoulder. Not surprisingly, he refused. Then, suddenly, the door opened, and there was my Uncle Rob. Shocked, I shook my head and tried to apologize for being such an inconvenience, but before I could even get the word sorry out, Rob leaned in and wrapped his arms around me, and he just held me for a moment, a beautiful, safe moment. I later learned the meanwhile part of the story. When I sent my sister that text, she was still in high school living in my parents' house in Texas. She was sitting on the stairs watching with concern as Dad kept calling me again and again. When my text came through, she read it out loud, and then Dad panicked. He immediately called and woke up the head resident at my dorm, asking him to see if I was in my room. When he found the note I'd left for my roommate, Dad called his brother Rob. Rob, I'm sorry, I know it's late, but you have to go find Mike. He was on his way to Mom and Dad's. He's not doing well. Can you go look for him? Rob and my Aunt Judy left quickly and headed toward my school, but soon received a phone call from the police. I guess he was listed as an emergency contact in my phone. After hugging me, Rob told me he'd meet me at the hospital. That was the first I'd heard of a hospital. As his protocol, the police had to take me in for a psychiatric evaluation. Upon learning this, I tried to sound much more chipper and sane. I went into full performer mode, trying to charm the cop driving the car as we headed to the hospital. Turns out he was uninterested in my jokes and seemed perfectly fine for me to just keep quiet in the back of his car. When we arrived at the hospital, Rob and Judy waited outside while I was wheeled in, literally in a wheelchair and still cuffed, to an exam room where I was asked a host of questions to determine my sanity and safety. I guess I passed because I was then escorted to another room where I could be kept under surveillance for the next few hours. Soon Rob came in and we talked for a while, interspersed by moments of heavy silence. Then Rob's phone rang. It was my dad. He wanted to talk to me. He didn't yet know exactly what had happened. And so when I answered the phone and told him, it was like I could hear his heart break all the way from Texas. I remember asking him not to tell my sister what happened. I know you have to tell mom, I said, but please don't tell Anna. It will devastate her. But of course, she had to know. After a few minutes, we ended the conversation, and after another hour or so, I was cleared to leave the hospital with Rob. As we walked to the car, Judy came toward us, eyes red from tears, and she hugged me. Despite my embarrassment, I felt glad she and Rob came. We headed toward my grandparents where I would stay the night. It was now nearly 2 a.m., almost five hours after I'd left my dorm. I remember the drive being quiet, but maybe it wasn't. Maybe I was just lost in my thoughts. I remember feeling so ashamed, not so much over what I'd done, but that I'd inconvenienced and worried my family. When we had finally arrived at their home, I opened the front door and there was my grandmother, standing in the foyer, eyes damp. Again, my shame spoke. I'm sorry I have to stay here tonight. 
And again, the shame was met with love. She took my face in her hands and said, Michael, this is your home. A couple of years ago, after living with my grandparents for three years, I teased her that had she known I was going to take her up on that invitation, she might have found a different way to console me. I took my bag of clothes and walked upstairs to the guest room that I always stated when I visited. Exhausted, I fell asleep quickly. I later learned that my grandmother, who was 72 years old at the time, spent the night on the floor outside my door. She wanted to be close if anything went wrong. When I awoke, it was about seven in the morning. I rolled over and there, sitting in a chair beside my bed, was my dad. He had caught the first flight out of Texas that morning. He held me close and told me he loved me and that he and mom would do whatever was necessary to help me heal. And they were true to their word. Over the next several years, my parents fully funded my therapy, individual, group, retreats, workshops. I dug in deep to the roots of my depression and uncovered new truths about myself. The journey was exhausting but I slowly began to find myself again. Seven years ago, I realized I had fallen to pieces, and now I've put those pieces back together again, and they're held tight by the beautiful and the boundless love of my family. Um, wow, crazy hearing it a second time. Uh, again, I, my eyes are watering, but what is that like for you to read that story? And, and why did you decide to write it? Um, it's, it's strange to, to tell the story again. Um, I had never told it publicly before that night on November 14th last month. And it's strange to then say it into a microphone knowing that an infinite amount of people could hear it. Um, but it feels, it feels right and good to let that story go. You know, there's, <coughs> excuse me, there's a saying that we're only as sick as our secrets. And so it's nice to let those stories not be secrets anymore. Lots of people knew them, but people who were really close to me. And, you know, when, it, when you tell the story, it helps to de-shame the process. And it's nice to remember and it's helpful to remember that I, I don't have anything to be ashamed about in that story. And, um, you know, that I wasn't as alone as I thought I was. And I know not everyone has that luxury. Not everyone has a family like that, and I realize that. Um, but I'm, it's, it really is to me, it's a love story. Um, it's when I felt perhaps most fully the love of my family that is ongoing and, and boundless. And I decided to write it as opposed to just telling it off the cuff because I'm a writer and I, I like to be very intentional with how I structure my sentences and choose my words. And I wanted a record of it, and, and I just decided to tell it because, like I say, it had been seven years, and I'd been trying to get up the courage for a while, um, but it just never felt right until this November for whatever reason. And so, so I got to tell it on the seven-year anniversary of it happening um, with my entire family in the audience, and that was also really meaningful because my parents had just moved here a couple of years ago, and so if I had told it when I first wanted, they wouldn't have been here. And so it was really meaningful to have them out there. And, and my dad afterwards was, he was very emotional and we had this big hug and seeing him tear up and my therapist was actually there. Uh, I won't of course say the name, but, but he came 
this first 10 by 9 I'd ever been to, and he wanted to support me and hear the story, and it was amazing, and I've been with him for about three years. Um, but the most incredible moment was when I introduced my dad to my therapist, and they just locked arms and hugged for, I mean, I mean at least a minute or two, both of them crying as my dad just kept saying thank you over and over again. And it was sort of like a moment of seeing him say, thank you for saving my son's life. And it, it was a sacred moment. It was really beautiful. And, yeah. That's so cool. Um, yeah, I'm like totally crying. But um, Michael, what, I always like to ask this question, what would you say to the younger Michael? Because there's a lot of people out there who, who are listening to this. I mean, I get emails every day from people who are saying, I feel so alone. I don't have. Get, I'm not getting the treatment I need. Um, what would you say to them? I don't know exactly. Um, it's a tough question. Everyone's story is different, and not everyone has the same resources. You know, and those and they're slightly different questions. What would I say to someone else who is dealing with this versus what would I say to my younger self? Um, I think to my younger self, I would just say you know that you're not alone. There is there's help there. Your family loves you. They're here for you. Just reach out. You know, their hands ready to pull you up. You just got to reach out. And I would pray that the same thing is true for a lot of other people. But as I say, I know not everyone has the same resources. And so not everyone can depend on their family. But I feel like I would venture to say that there are people in everyone's lives who love them, who want them to be healthy and happy uh, and whole. And that if we can just find those trusted people and and be vulnerable and reach out and remember that we're only as sick as our secrets and that when we tell our story to trusted people, because it's very important to pick trusted people, not everyone is safe to hold those stories, but when you find the right people and you tell those stories, it can help de-shame that and make us not feel so alone. And almost without fail, when I have told someone the story of my depression, especially if I've gone into the, the roots of that depression, the other person will say, well, actually, yeah, I've dealt with that too. I mean, I can think of only one or two times that I've told that story to someone who didn't also go through something like that. Not everyone attempted suicide, but everyone had, had felt that at some point. And when we, when we keep our stories to ourselves, we tend to think, I'm unique, this is only happening to me, I'm alone, no one else has ever dealt with this. And it's just a lie that the shame tells us we're not as alone as we think we are. Well, I think the answer is kind of already told, but I also... This podcast is called Redeeming Disorder because everybody goes through disorder. Do you, can you think of a way, is there a redeeming part of your story? I think so. I mean, I think what the redemption I feel like I have found is that it's given me opportunities to connect with people in ways that I otherwise might not have been able to. I think, I think it's the um, Sufi poet uh, Rumi um, who think who said that wounds are where the wounds are where the light gets in and that wounds are the places that truly allow us to connect deeply with other people because we've we've all we all have wounds we often have different wounds but often those wounds can be very similar and some of the people I'm closest to today are people that I have met and connected with because of this shared sense of grief and um, loneliness and trauma and it, it get yeah it gave me a sense of kind of, I don't know, solidarity and, and connectedness, I suppose, to, with folks that I otherwise wouldn't have had it with. And so I think I've been able to, to build friendships that were unexpected, but then also um, 
when I have told my story to some others, there have been a few people who, when they heard that, said, oh my goodness, I didn't know anyone else had dealt with that. Uh, and then I was able to say, well, here are the resources that helped me. And then um, I remember just about six, seven months ago, one of my friends who I talked to about three years ago wrote and said, after we had talked, um, you know, I went and used those resources and got the help that I needed. And now I've, you know, I've been healthy for a few years. And so I think allowing our stories and our trauma um, to be transformed um, so that we can be catalysts for healing and change is really important because trauma that's not transformed is just transferred um, and we just send it on to the next person. But if we can transform it and become agents of healing, um, then I think there's great redemption to be found in that. Well, Michael, thank you so much for sharing your story and your you. wisdom with, with us. And if somebody wants to connect with you, how would they do so? Yeah, first I would say... Um, Please, if you're in Nashville, come to a, a storytelling night. Um, we usually are the last Monday of each month uh, at Douglas Corner Cafe on 8th Avenue. But you can check us out online at 10by9nashville.com. And that's T-E-N-X and the number 9, uh, Nashville.com. 10by9nashville. Um, you can also write to me if you want uh, at M-T McRae. That's M for Michael, T for Thomas, McRae, M-C-R-A-Y at gmail.com. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter or on Facebook at Michael McRae. And yeah, I'd love to hear from you. And if you come to our 10 by 9 website, there are also, you can keep up to date with where our events are, but there's also a stories from 10 by 9 ers tab. Um, and you can read some of the stories that people have told as well as watch some of the videos of folks who recorded their stories. So there's lots of good stuff there for you. Awesome. Well, I strongly encourage you guys to do that. Even if you don't live in Nashville, you can still see those stories. So be sure to do that. Thanks again, Michael. Thanks. All right, so today we have someone on the podcast, a listener who can speak to a disorder we haven't gotten into all that much yet. Uh, obsessive compulsive personality disorder, which, as we'll get into, is different from obsessive compulsive disorder. Um, but our guest's name is Dino Andes. He is from the Philippines, so our first international guest. Very exciting. And he has not only a perspective on his own uh, condition and his own uh, symptoms that he's experienced, but is also pursuing... Uh, psychology academically and uh, we're very excited to hear about what he's done and what he hopes to accomplish in the field so welcome to the podcast Dino. Thanks for having me guys. Yeah I also like to point out that Dino he's been up all night because he's been traveling and he's in the airport right now so yeah. <laughs> um, he's really a good sport to come on and find a quiet area and talk to us with lack of sleep and in the midst of travel so thanks again Dino. Yeah, we appreciate uh, no it. No problem, guys. No problem. So, Dino, you emailed us and talked about a lot of things you have struggled with. You talked about list making and then some uh, habits that you've had trouble with, some symptoms. Do you want to just talk about what your experience is like today as far as disorder? Yeah, sure. About the list making that I have been doing, um, you know, looking back, I have started to to make lists even when I was younger and it kind of gotten worse now that I'm older you know mm -hmm. I have a lot of lists you know I, whenever I find paper I make a list mm -hmm. um, whenever I'm 
whenever I'm on my computer, I make a list, and I don't finish any list at all. You know, I just keep making one and another one, and you know, it just I just couldn't stop. <laughs> so are these just lists of anything that might come to mind, or you list uh, what you have to do, or a schedule, or it can just vary? Yeah, it varies um, every time, but usually it starts with um, something that I'm interested about, and then okay. yeah, like for example, I've been listening to you know Survivor podcasts, mm-hmm. and they've been making some drafts, and then I made my own, and then I never finished it, and then I made another one and never finished it, and it, it's it's time consuming actually. Right. And you feel just sort of compelled to do this? Is there ever a moment where you think you don't want to, but you almost need to? Yeah, actually all the time. Because um, I have a lot of stuff to do in my, um, in my work and in school. And I end up doing the lists instead of doing schoolwork. Uh, okay. So have you, have you missed deadlines or even gotten into problems because you've been really focused on the lists a lot actually um especially in the last three years oh it's terrible actually <laughs> so it's gotten worse a lot of yeah it's gotten worse got it is it when you've been in school like do you think um because i know when sometimes when i like school or work will just be a stress trigger for me um so do you think it's kind of due to that uh i don't think so because um, I've been doing good in school, you know, generally. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's just times that um, it just overpowers, you know, my, I don't know, will or something <laughs> to do it. So you, you, you consciously don't want to, but it's just a compulsion you feel. Yes. Um, Dino and I were emailing back and forth about him coming on. Um, you know, I, I made the mistake of talking about OCD, and he kindly corrected me and said, oh, no, I'm talking about OCPD. Dino, do you think you could help the listeners and me to understand what the difference is between? Uh, yeah, between, yes. OCD or obsessive compulsive disorder, uh, it used to be um, an anxiety disorder. And now mm-hmm. it's uh, it's being classified as as a whole group of disorders, you know, with some other disorders, um, unlike body dysmorphic disorder or hoarding disorder. But mm-hmm. basically, um, the difference with OCD and PD is that OCD um, is a personality disorder, wherein their obsessions and compulsions are different. Okay. So. From what I understand, if you have OCPD, you don't necessarily have specific obsessions that are driving your behavior. Yes. It's just it's just these symptoms coming up in, in the form of the behavior that you must do? Yeah, it is. That's correct. Okay. Have you been diagnosed or is this just self-reflection? No, I haven't been diagnosed because, um, first of all, I don't want to go to a shrink. Because I'm afraid that I might be diagnosed, and then you know I'm trying to st- I am studying psychology, and also there's a conflict there, <laughs> internal conflict. So. Okay. What kind so, of conflict would there be? Um, because I'm afraid that I might not be able to practice once I have a disorder. Mm. You know, I mean, mm. you know, it's it's just me thinking about it. Right. So you think being labeled with a disorder would make it harder for you to. Uh, do you want to be a 
psychiatrist ultimately, or do you want to study and research? What it, What is it you want to practice ultimately? I want to be a psychologist someday. Um, psychiatry is a totally different thing because um, then they can give medications. Right. And psychologists cannot. So you want to be a psychologist, but do you want to work yes. in research or what specifically do you want to do? Yeah, I want to work in research. What kinds of things would you like to research? Mostly um, social stuff, you know, social psychology related and abnormal psychology related like disorders. Yeah, I have to choose a more specific topic or field if I want to pursue this. Yeah, so I think it is a theme that there is a lot of fear around a label or a diagnosis preventing someone from doing something. I think you see this the most in maybe politics or if you want to be a CEO or something, things that are very public facing, it seems as if people are very hesitant to uh, consider those with conditions because of the associations they might have with those conditions. Uh, So, I mean, the fear definitely makes sense do you feel like it would be helpful for you or are you content to just uh, manage things on your own eventually i'd love to talk to someone and find out if i really have it or i I might just have symptoms Mm -hmm. of one or two disorders but you know right now i sometimes i manage it but sometimes i cannot so you know there's there's still the struggle right now what do you normally do to try to manage it Sometimes I try not to think about it. You know, I try to think about something else, something that's productive or something that, you know, um, is fun, is fun to do. I know you spent some time in the U.S. Are you able to see a difference between how the U.S. deals with mental disorder compared to in the Philippines? Oh, yeah, definitely. Thank you for bringing that up. <laughs> um, You're welcome. <laughs> You know, um, I've been listening to your podcast since since it started, and there's there's a lot of concern there. Hmm. Um, but it's so much worse here. Wow. You know, like um, even the conditions in um, mental health institutions, it's really bad. I, I mean, I, I've interned uh, twice before, and the facilities, it's bad. And you know, I mean, they try. I mean, yeah. eventually it'll be better, but uh, it's not not that soon though. Mm-hmm. What are the big problems that you've noticed in the facilities? It's dirty. It's not. It doesn't look healthy. Not even mm-hmm. for the patients. So not a lot of good infrastructure support built up there. Yeah. Um, what What do you think about the difference in attitudes? If you've noticed any, do people or culturally is there a difference in how mental disorder might be viewed? Yes. Here in the Philippines, um, people are not very accepting or very open to the concept of mental disorders. I mean, mm-hmm. based on the patients that I've worked with, um, their their families hide children's mental disorders or any illness that um, they, their children have. Is it because of shame as being part of the culture, as, in, you know, trying to protect the family name? Um, I think it's partly that, and it's partly because we are a third world country and like you know decades before probably when something uh, when someone doesn't behave like the rest of the group they're mm-hmm. labeled as crazy and, and that's it you said in your email to us that you have not gone to a psychiatrist because where you're from mental disorders are not widely talked about and because you're scared 
that a psychiatrist could confirm you have the disorders you think you might mm-hmm. have and it could affect your future. Does that still scare you in terms of even if you don't go to a psychiatrist, are you scared that your disorders could hinder your future? Yeah, I mean, I, I still am kind of scared about it. But, you know, even uh, if I'm if I'm talking to my um, professors, uh, they will mm-hmm. um, not entertain the thought that I have these disorders. Mm-hmm. You know, they, they'll just say that, you know, that these are just symptoms. Mm-hmm. But the one thing that I, I didn't tell them is that it's it's somehow taking over a lot of my time yeah. and a lot of aspects of my life are, of course, um, affected. Yeah, I mean, that's something we've gotten into a lot that is still... Uh, definitely a back-and-forth conversation about when do you go from talking about just symptoms to a disorder and when is it helpful to talk about something as a disorder. Um, I guess, do you feel like the label of these disorders is helpful for you in understanding yourself? Yeah, yes, of course. As opposed to just thinking about the symptoms you experience. Yes, um, because when I read um, a criteria, because every disorder has a criteria for it to qualify mm-hmm. as a disorder. Right. Um, sometimes when I, I go back and forth on the criteria, I have this or I don't have this, mm-hmm. you know, then uh, sometimes I think that, you know, I probably don't have this, you know, l- like what you said, it's just going back and forth. So right. you know, nothing's really that clear. Right, so it's uh, it, it can be ambiguous. You're saying that as far yes. as whether or not you should have an actual diagnosis, even if there's clearly a problem. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Have you talked to like a friend or family about about this? Like, has anybody noticed your tendencies to make lists? Um, <laughs> yeah, uh, uh, maybe not about the list, but about something else that I might have. Oh, okay. Okay. Um, which which is um, hoarding. Hoarding yeah. objects like yeah. collections. Yes, like mm. worthless stuff. Oh, um, okay. So saving a ton of stuff you don't need. Yeah, actually, uh, it, it it kind of costs a lot already. Is it costing a lot to store them, or, uh, or costing a lot to buy no, them? No, costing a lot to buy them. Okay. Are there? Yeah. So that, that, that's when that's when my family. Um, found out about it because um, I used my credit card uh, uh, three times and it cost me around what, how much? Um, $2,500 oh, wow. each time. <laughs> yeah, so they found out and they paid for it and then mm-hmm. I used my card again and then they paid for it again. So, yeah. So has that, has that really affected your relationships with your family then? Um, at some point, yeah, it did. They're very supportive. Uh, they tell me that I'm better than this and that it was just sort of a phase that I went through and it was just spending instead of being something else, instead of being a condition. Mm-hmm. Hmm. You sound really sad when you talk about it. Well, why do you sound that way? Maybe because um, they were really affected by it and it somehow made a difference in our relationship hmm. at the time. Yeah. But now they, they don't even bring it up anymore. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, we're, we're, it's a better relationship now. I think when anybody goes through some hard things, they're not, they're, 
you know, the symptoms of that is that they're not their best self. And so sometimes it it can cause pain or cause trouble for the, in the relationships. And I know when I kind of went through my brain injury, I was depressed and I wasn't the I wasn't the best friend or the best daughter or the best sister, and it caused problems in my relationships. Do you f- still feel like kind of like shame and, and like where you want to take responsibility for that and wanting to fix those relationships? Is, are you still kind of working through that? Um, at the moment, no, uh, not not anymore because um, yeah, but but the time when I was hoarding a lot, uh, it did it did cause a rift, probably between me and my sister, me and my brother. Mm-hmm. Uh, because there was so much stuff at my house, like a lot of stuff, and yeah, we were just fighting and fighting. They want to throw the stuff out, but I, I don't want to. I didn't want to, but you know, eventually, when you know something happened, I think my hoarding kind of stopped because of that. Do you mind saying what happened? Yeah, sure. Uh, last July, uh, I went to the U.S. for a competition, and so mm-hmm. no, no one was left. At my house, I was actually robbed, and um, yeah, like the bad kind of robbed. (laughs) Yeah, nothing. (laughs) My house was ransacked, and a lot of yes. I went when I went back home in August. um, My house was filthy, even filthier than it already was. Most of my stuff that I collected since I was a kid actually damaged. And I had to throw them out. Aww. Like, I, I had to throw them out. So, and after that, I kind of stopped collecting or hoarding stuff. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I guess, I guess it was for the better, somehow. So, there was a silver lining. Was that yeah. just devastating, though? I mean, I can't imagine if you were so attached to these things that you wouldn't want to throw them out. Was it just devastating to have them all taken or damaged? Yes, it was because um, it took so much time for me to to um, to collect those stuff, you know, a lot of other stuff. But yeah, yeah, definitely. After that, I was just I, I cried for probably three days mm-hmm. when I was alone. Gosh, yeah, yeah. So yeah, I'm but sorry. no, I'm I, I'm better now. I, I thank you. <laughs> well, yeah, I'm and I'm now. glad that I'm glad that it, you know you did find that silver lining of being able to get over the hoarding tendencies after that happened it's at least um something redemptive about it do you, are yeah. you hopeful that you might find some similar way to get over the list taking or any other habits you have now yes actually um i'm kind of hopeful now that since my hoarding kind of you know disappeared i i, I don't know how i'm gonna do it but um, I'm hopeful that I can still overcome this uh, list making that I'm doing. Have you have you tried anything for yourself, or are there any techniques you've you've tried to help? Yeah, it's ironic that um, I'm studying psychology and I can I can't even help myself. But I try stuff once in a while to do other stuff and you know to throw the actual lists that I did. Mm-hmm. But. You know, when when I'm not thinking about anything, when I'm not studying, when I'm not when I'm not doing anything, I tend to go back to making lists mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. for some reason. So, so if you're really like conscious of these things, or if you deliberately throw them out, you might get a little bit of relief. But then, in those quiet moments, you find it coming back. Yeah, a lot of times. 
So are there any resources that would be available, like like going to therapy, like talking to somebody that um, you could use for this? Or are you still afraid of that, you know, the stigma, especially with, you know, your future? Um, yeah, there's definitely still um, the fear. Mm-hmm. But eventually, I ha- even, uh, I mean, especially now that I listen to your podcast, that people really get the help. And mm-hmm. now I, I want to get help for myself, mm-hmm. you know, so awesome. one way or another. But because uh, I, it's uh, it's so tiring what I'm, you know, doing these compulsions. It's uh, it's very tiring. You could always see a therapist, but not necessarily a psychiatrist, right? You could talk to someone without necessarily being diagnosed. Um, yes, I could. I could. I could go to a counselor or a psychologist. And probably they're going to suggest some therapy and, you know, behavioral therapy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That now that I'm talking to you guys, I feel so stupid for not, you know, figuring this out for myself. No. Oh. <laughs> I mean, I'm, gosh, uh, to, to get into the theory and learn about this stuff, I'm sure is a whole different thing from being able to put it into action, especially in something where it's, it's hard to really get full perspective when it's yourself. Yeah, I, I, I guess that's true. And I think, like, even experts go see other experts. Like, a doctor will go see another doctor to get, you know, medical attention. So Of course, of course. I don't think it's realistic for you to think, oh, because I'm studying this, I shouldn't be able to do this on my own at all. Oh, yeah, just so you know, we are not allowed to diagnose ourselves. Oh, okay. So, Hmm. yeah. That's probably a good thing. (laughs) Yeah, I guess that that does make sense. I just feel as if when it comes to oneself, it's... It's so different and so much harder to see clearly. Even where do you where do you stand now? Or I guess where do you feel now? It sounds like there's a, t- a huge mix of emotions where you're afraid, but you're hopeful that something might come along where you can stop. You are hesitant to go see someone, but you do think it might be time to help yourself. It seems like you are sort of between two directions right now. I think the only thing to do is, you know, actually taking the first step. Um, I think it's the hardest thing to do. When I, I mean, when I make the first step, I think it's going to just go on and on, and then I get help for myself. Eventually. What's your first step? Do you think? Actually, going to a psychologist mm-hmm. to talk, mm-hmm. you know, and well, and open up about one thing first, and then open opening up again about something else. Yeah. Well, you know, it's not, this podcast isn't necessarily just about my opinion, but I think, um, I think you've already taken a big step in realizing that that would help you realizing that that is a future step to take. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The, 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 the stigma is still there somehow. I would love, do you know, if you, you know, yes. you decide to go see a psychologist, if you, um, came back on the podcast, and told us how it went or send us an email because I think a lot of people share your concern of taking that first step and going to see somebody and you know facing that fear and that stigma so I think that would be really cool sure sure Uh, um, yeah hopefully soon hopefully sooner well I mean it's 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 cool to hear that you see that it could help you and that you are hopeful. Um, 
and yeah, I really hope that you you do find someone. I know it's sometimes hard to find the right therapist, um, but I really hope that you can find someone uh, or some avenue where you can um, find some healing. Yeah, I hope so too. Thank you. And also, I just like to say, Dino, I think it's so cool that yes. you want to go into this field because um, I'm sure that has something to do with your own experience of wanting to help people um, who are going through difficult things. And and so I just think that's, I applaud that. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you so much. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's true, Laura. Um, of course, uh, basically, I wanted to, you know, find out why I'm experiencing some things. That's why I went into psychology in my undergraduate. Oh. Um, now that I am in my graduate level studies, it's basically to help other people now, not just to help myself. Mm-hmm. And yeah, and I'm grateful for you guys for having this podcast. Actually, you're helping a lot of people. Well, I, I and I think uh, by extension, you're helping a lot yes. of people, whether or not uh, you know we're really rooting for you and uh, hoping that you will continue to improve and take those steps but regardless uh you can feel good that i'm sure someone out there is hearing you and this has helped them mm-hmm. uh, thank you spencer i hope so too <laughs> <laughs> well dino thank you so much for coming on and especially in a hectic day where you're traveling and no sleep oh. but seriously we both um just so appreciate your honesty and vulnerability about sharing what you're experiencing and we're both rooting for you not only in as you go on to your field but also as you um, possibly seek treatment in the future and please keep in touch with us because we want to know your journey and we want to stay in touch of course yeah thank you so much i'm following you guys now so oh awesome. <laughs> um, yeah do you want to give out your handle your twitter for anyone who wants to get in touch with you uh, if you guys have questions, um, you can tweet me at um, Dino Andes. It's D-I-N-O-A-N-D-E-S. Awesome. Well, thanks, Dino, and stay in touch, right? Thank you, Spencer. Thank you, Laura. Thank you so much, guys. We're so happy to have Redeeming Disorder listener on who has had some personal experiences with mental disorder in addition to working in the mental health field. So Ashley Thornton, thank you so much for listening, first of all, but thank you also for coming on today. Thank you for having me. Yeah, thank you, Ashley. We're are happy to get into uh, everything that you have to say about your personal story as well as your perspective on disorder in general in society. It's cool when we can talk to someone for whom that intersects, for whom you have experience thinking about this uh, in general for everyone as well as in your own personal situations. Oh, thank you. Yeah, I just think it's so great what you guys are both doing because from my experiences, there is a lot of stigma around mental health and I feel just in general as a society we don't talk about it or if we do it's always in a negative sort of way Mm -hmm. and so I feel like it's great to have these conversations and realize that a lot of people's experiences are normal and it's okay and everyone does go through a lot of these sort of different things. Yeah, I guess if you want to get into talking through your story, when did you first encounter or start thinking about Uh, disorder in your life? Oh, gosh. Um, There's a few different ways I can answer this question because, well, first, my mom 
uh, has been diagnosed with schizophrenia. So I have my experiences with that. And then Mm. on the other side, I personally, ever since I feel like I was a child and I was bullied a lot, I felt like I've dealt with depression. And then I've also have survived some sexual traumas, which have led to some other stuff like PTSD and Mm -hmm. this uh, other sexual uh, mental disorder called vaginismus. So then I have my experiences with that as well. But I feel like um, just my whole life, I've always have dealt with mental health in one way or another. And then I've always wanted to be a therapist too when I was a child. So I've just have always have had an interest in mental health since I was a child. Yeah. Well, thanks so much, first of all, for coming on and talking with us because yeah. that is a lot for any person yes. to deal with. And we're, we admire you for being willing to come on and talk to us and share with you talk about stigma makes it hard to share things. I'm sure you're facing that from so many different angles. I mean, there's stigma around so much of what you've dealt with. So thank you for being brave enough to to do that. And it's it's good to hear that you wanted to because of, you know, you align with that mission of breaking down stigma. And I guess on the subject, do you feel like there is an intersection in the stigma you face around all these different issues where not only is there a stigma around mental disorder, but there's definitely a stigma around uh, sex and presumably sexual disorder as well, where um, I would imagine it's even harder in that kind of a situation. Mm-hmm. Have you noticed that kind of uh, intersection? Oh, absolutely. And as far as the anything sexual, which like that's my favorite topic to talk about. I had it when I was in school, I had a teacher who was a sex therapist. So I'm like really into that topic. But, mm-hmm. um, you know, I feel just, you know, not a lot of people are open to talk about their sex life, which is understandable because that's mm-hmm. such a private part of a relationship. Um, but I kind of feel maybe the silver lining, I guess, maybe you could say of uh, what I've gone through with overcoming vaginismus was maybe, oh, maybe one of the reasons why I've had that in my life to deal with was so I could speak out and, you know, it, I don't know what the prevalence rate of these things are because I think mm-hmm. a lot of any mental health goes underreported. But, you know, yeah, I think just I, to I would talk agree. about it. Yeah, definitely. Well, and for our audience, what is vaginismus, if you don't mind? Okay, I do not mind at all. Because um, I didn't even know about that I had this until I went to grad school and I learned about it in my oh, textbook. Wow. Um, wow. Yeah, but I had been dealing with it for my whole life. So basically, uh, it's a sexual pain that disorder, whenever uh, insertion, whether it's sexual or like, say, like a tampon, just any sort of insertion is attempted. Mm-hmm. There's pain, so it makes it impossible. Mm-hmm. The We call it the PC muscle group, and that stands for some really long medical word mm-hmm. that I can't even pronounce, but just the PC muscle group around the muscles down there, it contracts, so it closes it up, and it's very painful. Um, I want to say it's like, you know, just like hitting a wall, like mm-hmm. nothing. It makes it impossible, but it's there's... I really don't know how to like what else to compare this pain to, but it's it's very, very painful. It makes it mm-hmm. anything impossible. And there's two types. There's primary and secondary. I had primary and that's just um, I was never able to have any insertion, whereas secondary 
you are able to have insertion. So, you know, you're having a normal sex life and then something Mm -hmm. happens. So maybe you have a surgery down there or you have a child and whatever after that event is, then it makes, uh, for whatever reason, we don't know, but then you have the pain. So that's Mm -hmm. the difference between the Mm -hmm. two, but basically it's just pain and, um, the muscles contract and close up. So it makes it impossible. Wow. I'm really curious. I mean, if, if you guys are okay, I really would love to hear about what sch- the, your experience as a child with a mom with schizophrenia was like. Sure. So she was actually diagnosed with late onset. However, uh, just some experiences that I've had and other uh, these things like my dad has told me, I think it was more um, she's had some episodes of it before it got like really really severe and she had to be hospitalized so growing up as a child um I never noticed anything out of the norm I'd say I'd have like a normal childhood in that sense Mm -hmm. however just from stories I've told I guess at work is when um uh she'd have these episodes and there's a lot that like i found out you know since but she has the paranoid um uh, subtype so her thing she was always fixated on our neighbors and I don't know like how much well she ain't gonna listen but (laughs) (laughs) um uh, what was I saying but she thought that they were like aliens from another planet and you know I've heard stories of her just locking herself up in a closet for the whole day like 12 hours um so yeah and um so it's a lot of things you've heard and it's it you didn't necessarily see it or or just think of it as abnormal when you were a child Right, because, like, as a child, I just, that was always, that's all I knew, so I didn't think Mm -hmm. anything was abnormal about it, Mm -hmm. and then as an adult, so, um, my family's also from Chicago, uh, the suburbs, yeah, (laughs) um, and then I, I moved out to LA for graduate school six years ago, so, as far as how she is now, you know, we don't see each other that often, unfortunately, just, like, you know, like, Christmas, and mm-hmm. they just came out for my wedding. Congratulations. Um, oh, thank you. Yeah, congrats. Um, thanks. Um, but, you know, just uh, when she came out for my wedding, I could just tell that whatever medications she's on, she was just, I would say, like, not herself. She was very flat affect and everything, and... I just, I don't know, it wasn't my mom, hmm. yeah. if that makes any sense. Yeah. Yeah. What is, has she uh, ventured into any different kinds of treatments? No, just um, uh, different medications. Um, she was hospitalized a bit ago, and since then, I don't believe she hasn't been back any hospital trips since. They're just with her medications. Um I know she does not see any sort of therapist at the moment, which mm-hmm. I'm, I highly advocate therapy for anyone, but mm-hmm. right. I, I agree, obviously. And that's what we've talked about a lot on the podcast. Um, You've had re- two very interesting experiences with your mom and schizophrenia and then you with vaginismus. And I'm just curious, what have you learned that could help people who are listening better understand mental disorder? I think just the biggest thing I would want people to think, take away from this is 
just to be an advocate for yourself and go seek out therapy, even if you, you don't have like depression or anxiety, just even, you know, you, I don't like the word disorder because I feel like mm -hmm. it makes it like there's something wrong with you when there isn't. But just, you know, mm -hmm. you could seek therapy just, you know, just for like something like stressful going on in your life or whatever. I just, um, you know, just psychology today.com type in your address, a bunch of therapists will pop up. And, you know, you maybe you might have to go to like one or two or three before you find someone that you just really connect with. Mm -hmm. But mm -hmm. the biggest thing I just want to take away is for people like, you know, if you're um, going through something, mm -hmm. it's totally okay. It's normal. And therapy, I, I feel like I just can't even put into words all of the benefits that um, I've got out from going to therapy by mm -hmm. myself. Yeah. Well, when and you seem really open. You seem really open about talking about the things you've experienced and willing to have those conversations, which I'm guessing has gone a long way into you being able to help yourself through some really tough stuff. Um, have you found that certain things are harder to be open about than others, or has have you just uh, been able to open up slowly over time about everything you've gone through? Oh, it's definitely been really, really slow. Um the biggest thing was like, this is my first time talking about vaginism. The only other person who knew anything about this was my husband. I never told anyone about this before. Like no wow. exes, no friends or family. Mm -hmm. um, I just really feel like now's the time. Mm -hmm. um, and then just some other things I'm going through with my life, like with depression. And mm -hmm. um, this is really sad. My therapist that I've been seeing for a long time just died. So now I'm like, oh dealing with that transition uh -huh. I'm so sorry. yeah 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 um it's been like um definitely a transition but this therapist I had she was so like the best um mm -hmm. so I feel like that's really has helped me been able to come out of my shell and talk about anything really I really admire you for being willing to talking about all this and say that this is the time I imagine you'd be doing her really proud in terms of bringing these issues out there and it's it's a really scary thing to to open up like this oh now you got me thinking about her <laughs> and I miss her oh, sorry you guys <laughs> no it is really special I mean I think uh last week we had a therapist on and she talked a lot about just that the importance of connection for healing and and you know I've gone to yes. counseling and when you find a therapist you really connect with that lost it whether it's you know them passing away which that hasn't happened to me so um i'm so sorry it's huge yeah and there's actually a lot of studies where um and i can't quote any off the top of my head but <laughs> if you there's a lot of studies out there that say the most important uh part of therapy in terms of like what you would consider success is the connection the rapport that you have with the mm -hmm. therapist the, there's the been best a lot predictor of, studies, of yeah. success in yes in Oh wow! Yeah, yeah that is that. wow. That, that's really interesting. I mean, it seems it seems certainly plausible that that's got to be so important. I mean, it affects your just ability to open yourself up to the change they can bring for you. Yeah, and then this woman too. She was uh, just very like hippie, new agey, which is the exact opposite of me. Mm -hmm. um, so I just, you know, uh, any listeners just, you know, even if it's someone that has a different approach than you, you know, just meet with them at least once, you know, just see how it goes or, you know, talk to them over the phone. Just yeah. be open to 
you know, meeting with people is, I guess, what I'm trying to say. No, that's that's awesome being open because I, I bet a lot of people who consider themselves the opposite of hippie new agey would steer very clear. You know, they'd as soon as they heard, you know, someone was uh, whatever it is, you know, trying to interested in crystal healing or opening up chakras, they might turn the other way. But to be open to someone, even if you might be different in some superfluous ways yeah that's i that seems like a really valuable skill well i'm into the paranormal and i've done all of those ghost hunting shows so i guess i am really really <laughs> just about anything <laughs> i like that attitude ghosts? though <laughs> for our listeners when would you tell them to seek out therapy because some people are still kind of on the fence about it but what do you think who do you think could benefit or or when should they reach out Everyone, now, do it now. <laughs> Would you say people who feel as if they have no serious problem, it still can be beneficial? Oh, absolutely. Just, you know, just little, like, everything in life. Um, someone that they might think, oh, this isn't that bad, but then they don't realize the amount of stress it's taking, you know, they're allowing it to consume in their brain, you know? And I think sure. if you're even just on the fence thinking about it, then that's definitely, you're thinking about it. Go reach out, mm. psychology.com or something. I know you can just Psychology type in your today. Address. Yeah, that one. Yeah, yeah, just totally. I mean, and hey, like, why not experiment? Up. Why not go and uh, try it out? It's. I think people overestimate the cost of just trying something. They research things to death ad infinitum and don't just take the plunge and see a therapist, see how it goes. You know, it's not this huge commitment. You're committing an hour and a half to see if something could maybe help you. Yeah, and then, you know, you could, before you go to someone's office, you could just call them over the phone, just, you know, just kind of get their vibe, see if you mm. guys connect. And then a lot of things, too, with money, ask for a sliding scale. Um, a lot of therapists offer it. So instead of their full fee, whatever it is, it's reduced. So if someone, if the money thing, if that's what's keeping them, just ask about sliding scale. Most therapists offer it. That's great. Like 99.9, I'd say offer it. Yeah. Oh, those are great points. That and the talking to a therapist over the phone, if you want to just get a feel for someone. Uh, I think maybe people don't always realize all the options there are out there or what they can do to just explore it without uh, necessarily committing going from zero to a hundred percent in therapy all in one felt swoop. Mm-hmm. And then, you know what the, um, most, uh, frequent number of sessions people see a therapist is. What? It's what is just, it? It's just one. Wow. Um, yeah. Um, so but, just yeah. see, and then hopefully, um, you'll go back for more. Hopefully it's a good <laughs> right. connection. It just goes to show that people are able to see a therapist once and just decide maybe they don't want to go forward. So it's not that commitment, but um, it's there's no harm in in trying in trying it out once. Exactly. I know it can be a little nerve wracking to like open up to a stranger, but I think any good therapist the they can gauge where you're at in this that today and they'll allow you to open up on your own time. I mean, mm -hmm. I know like some people, they'll um, 
just they'll be seeing someone for years and then just one day they'll be they'll open up and be like you know i never told anyone this but and then they'll say whatever right um i think most i think a good therapist can gauge you know like you'll be ready to open up about whatever on your own time yeah no i think that's a really good point and yeah wow we've covered a lot from Mm -hmm. therapy and all your options to how it differs talking about different issues, whether it's in a parent or in yourself and how it manifests, how you learn about it. Uh, thank you so much for, yeah, thank you, Ashley. for all of that. Oh, thank you guys for having me. We really appreciated Ashley coming out and opening up with us today. We didn't know when we were first talking to her that that was the first time she had shared a lot of this stuff. So really honored and flattered that she decided to come on and share that with us and with you. And we hope that you enjoyed all the diverse topics we got into today. We covered so much with vaginismus, schizophrenia, OCPD, uh, talking about OCD and the difference between those two briefly and the issue of suicide, uh, as well as the industry of psychiatry and the study of psychology. So a ton to digest. Yeah, and I really hope that Dino does kind of come back on and if he does end up getting treatment and then kind of can share his experience with that. So that's something to look forward to maybe in our second season. We'll see. Yeah, absolutely. I think headed into 2017, it's a great time to reflect on how we can help ourselves, what we can do, what steps we can take. And I really do hope Dino helps himself. And, you know, I I so appreciated him coming on and just speaking very honestly about where he's at, not trying to put any rosy tint on his situation that he does have real fears and has seen some of the symptoms getting worse. And I really am rooting for him, and I hope that everyone who's in a situation like that, who's debating how they might be able to get help, takes care of themselves. Yeah, and I, I love talking to Michael, too. Um, it was neat, you know, just seeing him on stage and perform and then having him come to my house and, and record it. Um, it was really neat to hear the, that story twice. It's so powerful, and um, I know he'd love to connect with people, so be sure to, to do that. And um, speaking of connecting, uh, continue to reach out to us at our website, redeemingdisorder.wordpress.com, on Twitter, email. Um, we'd love to hear from you. And we're not, we're not mad. I know you forgot our Christmas present, but it's okay. <laughs> uh, rate and subscribe. We would yes. so appreciate it. And we will talk to you in 2017.